Good morning, Lindsley Avenue. Good morning. It's good to see some of you, for me at least, for the first time. And if you are here uh, visiting, we're very glad you're here. We hope you will come again and visit each and every opportunity that you have. Uh, if you're watching from home, uh, we miss you. We're glad you're watching either live with us now or taped and video later. So thank you for being with us. This morning, I want to talk about something that when perhaps a couple of you saw the title, you might have thought, oh no, what is Gene going to talk about this morning? But I've titled this, uh, Choose the Real Election. Uh, for some reason, I've been hearing about elections recently. I, I'm trying to figure out why. Uh, you know, I'm not really sure why it seems to be such a big deal. But uh, when we have an election, we're making a choice. When you go and are eating something and you have two options in front of you, whether you eat the ice cream or the broccoli is a choice. For many people, if that's what's in front of you, the choice is pretty easy. So some choices are probably pretty easy. But an election is merely a choice. And the election, the idea of election and choice is a very biblical idea. It's an idea that's very grounded in what God has told us. And so. I want to talk about what the Bible says about election choice, but as the start, I want to talk about what some of our religious neighbors discuss and mean when they talk about election. Now, I am not in any kind of habit of whooping up on the neighbors. That's not me. But I want to look at what some of our religious neighbors talk about and mean when they talk about election. And some of the thoughts that they have, which are fairly prevalent among our religious neighbors, I want to try to explain those as best I can correctly. And then I want to simply to look at some passages from the text and say, does the Bible support what some of our religious neighbors might say about the idea of election? So when we're talking about this, are humans, are you and I able to make free choices? Or are we puppets or free agents? Has God decided who in this audience is going to go live with him once time is up and who is not? Whether we make any choices in our lives or not. Do I have any influence? Do I have any choice in the matter? Or has God chosen ahead of time who is going to go live with him and who is not? Many religious groups do in fact believe that God chose, before the world was even created, that some people were going to be saved and others were going to be lost. Before you and I were ever born, before our parents were ever born, before Adam and Eve were ever walking on the earth, they will teach that before that time, God picked among all the 40 billion or so people that have ever lived, who was going to go home and live with him and who was not. So since that's what our religious neighbors teach, let's talk a little bit about that idea. This idea of free will, sometimes it's called predestination, goes all the way back to Augustine, sometimes called Saint Augustine. He lived around 400 A.D., one of the big thinkers in that entire period. And he believed that God had predestined to save some people. Those he did not choose to save were simply condemned because of the things they did in their day-to-day -day lives. In other words, 
Let's suppose that he has, God had decided to save Jeff and not save Thurman. Okay, sorry about that. It's okay. <laughs> right? God shows Jeff, we don't know why, not because Jeff is necessarily a, a stellar individual, although I, from all appearances he is. I think Robbie would be taking a stick to him right now if he weren't. But God chose Jeff. He just didn't choose Thurl over here. It's not that he sends Thurl to the bad place, but because you made mistakes, you get what you deserve. So God chooses the people he wants to come home and live with him, and everybody else gets what they deserve. That's what Augustine taught, really true. He simply does not save all the other people. God's reasons for preferring one over the other are unknowable to us. It's not based on any inherent worth, any inherent goodness. God's choices are God's choices. They're mysterious. We'll never know. That was what Augustine taught back around 400 A.D. And it's still what some of our religious neighbors that follow along that line of thinking will teach today. Some thousand years later, you have John Calvin, about 1500 A.D. He taught what's often called double predestination. He agreed with Augustine that God, in fact, had predestined to save some people, not because they were good people, better than other people, but God picked them for whatever reasons God had that we will never know, but that he also predestined some people to be damned. Different slightly from Augustine, because Augustine said he just didn't pick you, you get what you deserve. Calvin said, no, picking Jeff and not picking Thurl is essentially sending Thurl to the bad place. So he said, no, I'm going to go the whole, the whole full nine yards. I'm going to say God picks some people to live with him and some people to be condemned. That's what Calvin taught. And that's what some of our religious neighbors today will believe. Again, this saving is, or condemnation is not because you're necessarily better or, or worse than anybody else. The choice, the key thing about both Calvin and Augustine, the choice is with God. The election, the choice is with God. Okay? Um, he developed, Calvin developed a whole series of doctrines that explain all this. And the only way I have ever found to remember them is with this acronym, TULIP. Uh, sometimes people that that are in our religious neighbors, they attend services with our religious neighbors, might get upset with that. Uh, it's not meant to be derogatory. I just can't remember it any other way. So my apologies to anyone that happens to see this who is part of the group that believes some of the things Calvin taught. But Tulip, I want to go through those real quick because we have to understand what our religious neighbors think if we're going to talk to them about what the Bible says and see how it fits, right? So the first one, Total hereditary depravity. Total hereditary depravity. Big words. They're going to be big words in these ideas. And so what that says is, is that you were born without the ability to choose good. You can't. You cannot choose good. You cannot. You are incapable of choosing God. And so if you can't choose to do good or to follow after God, then... God has to choose you. And so each of these is like a set of dominoes. I love those videos. Have you seen those where they have dominoes that set them up for a month or something? And 
They tap one and it does goes all over the place. What you hope is that no one sneezes the day before because that would just ruin it all. But each of these is a domino that, if true, requires the next one. So if we are unable to choose to do good, if we are unable to choose God, the next step has to come in. And this next step is called unconditional election. Remember, election is a choice. This says then that if I can't, if you can't choose God, God has to choose you. And it's not based on conditions. It's not, I'm going to choose you because you will be a good person. That would make it conditional. There's conditions, right? Uh, no, 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 no. Calvin said it has nothing to do with who you are. God chose for his own reasons. And so if you can't choose God, God has to choose you. And he's chosen from eternity before the world began to extend mercy or condemnation. That's total hereditary depravity, the T in the word tulip. And you, unconditional election, the you that's in there. And so since you can't choose God, God has to choose to love you. The L, again, I told you some big words in these. The L stands for limited atonement. Now, Jesus, when he died, paid the price for our sins. Pretty fundamental idea from the Bible. And so that's called the atonement, the paying of the price. Well, if God chose Jeff but didn't choose Thurl, Jesus didn't die for Thurl. Because God decided before the world began that you're going to hell. I'm gonna, I'll choose somebody else in a minute. So I don't want to give you a complex. All right? But you see what I mean? Jesus didn't die for some people. And that's what is taught. That's what it all means. Limited atonement. Jesus didn't die for everybody. He died simply, merely, if you will, for the people God wants to go be with him. He didn't die for anybody else. Limited atonement. Okay? So the sins of those that were chosen are the ones that are for, paid for, forgiven. Everybody else, the sins stay on them and they go to the place of condemnation. Since God only chose a few people, relatively speaking, out of those 40 billion that might have lived in all of humanity's history, Jesus' death is really only for them. The next one, I, stands for irresistible grace. You know, suppose God has chosen Jeff, but Jeff really likes to live it up. Okay, he's a partying kind of guy. But if God chose you, you're going to come to him. It's an offer you can't refuse. How are you going to not come to God if God chose you before the world ever started? And so the grace that God is going to give is irresistible. Sometime or other, God's going to get you because you're his. You don't have any, listen, choice. In the matter. Because God already chose you. And you're going to come to him. The grace is irresistible. Okay, It means that when God decides to save somebody. There's no escape. You're going to come home to God. In the same way. If you are trying to come to God. But you're not one of his people. It ain't going to work. It isn't going to work. The last one here. They all follow. They're all very logical. If you grant that the first one is true. That you cannot choose good, you cannot choose God. If that one is true, all of what he's talking about here is correct. So the, if it's not going to be true, it's got to be that first one. 
the T, right? It's T. So this one says the preservation of the saints. Sometimes you hear that once saved, always saved. Well, think about it. If God chose some of us to go home and live with him, how are you going to get away from God and get lost? How can you possibly be lost if God said before he even thought of creating the world, whatever that would have meant, right? I'm going to have Gina come home and live with me. How are you going to get away from God? Right? Once you come to God, you, there's no worry about leaving God because he's made an offer you can't even refuse. And that's really a way of thinking about this whole idea of some of our religious neighbors. Some of them believe God chose people to come live with him. Everybody else gets what they deserve. And some of our religious neighbors, a large percentage of them, believes that he chose people to come home and live with him and chose others to go be condemned. That's what the teaching is that's very prominent, very predominant, very widespread among some of our religious neighbors. Okay? So... Is This is the basic question, that first question of total depravity. Is the ultimate choice with God or is it with us? If it's with God, then what I've just talked about is in fact correct. So what does the Bible say about these things? Does it suggest, does it state pretty obviously that God chooses or that we choose? Where's the real election? Where's the real election? Well, look at some passages with me here. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 19 and 20. This is Moses right before the people cross over into the promised land. What does Moses tell the Jewish people? He says, I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, Choose life that both you and your descendants may live. Moses says, I, you've got two options in front of you, people. Please, please choose life so that things will go well and you might live. That sure doesn't sound like you're not capable of choosing life. If you can't choose life, why am I telling you to choose life? What's the point of that? Moses says, please, there's two options, choose life, otherwise it's going to be really bad. And what do the Jewish people do most of their history? They choose to go and play and party and sin. They don't choose life and things turn out really bad. Moses does not really seem to agree with that first domino. But maybe I've misunderstood Moses, right? Let's look at other verses. How about Joshua 24? Joshua calls all the people to him. All the people to him after the conquering of the lands. The people of Israel now possess the land of Canaan, by and large, most of it. And so he calls them, and he's getting old. He's going to leave them with a few thoughts here at the very end of the book of Joshua. What does Joshua tell the people? And if it seems good for you to serve the Lord, choose this day... Whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Choose who you're going to serve. That sounds a whole lot like you can choose to serve God. 
If you can't choose to serve God, why bother with that? I don't really understand why you would gather all the people together and tell them, please, please choose to serve God if, in fact, the truth of everything is that most of them can't choose. That doesn't seem to fit. So Joshua sure seems to agree with Moses. Well, again, maybe it was a long time ago. Maybe these two are a, a bit on the confused side. Let's keep going. Proverbs. Most proverbs are written by Solomon. Some written by a few other people. Solomon, pretty wise man. Right? One of the wisest who ever lived. Here's what he said. Because they, God's people, hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord... They would have none of my counsel and despise all of my reproof, all of my correction. Therefore, they will eat the fruit of their way. Well, they did not choose the fear of the Lord. And that, the strong implication there is that they could have chosen the fear of the Lord. They could have responded to the correction and the reproof and the exhortations to please stop doing those things. They don't. And because they don't choose God, they get all these bad things that are going to happen to God's people. Solomon, I would suggest, agrees with Joshua, agrees with Moses. Let's go ahead and look some more. This is Isaiah, one of the major prophets, one of the largest books in the Old Testament. A prophet to the people of Israel, speaking from God. In chapter 1, look what Isaiah tells the people. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you're going to be devoured by the sword. You've got two options. You can be obedient and things are going to go well, or you can refuse and things are going to go bad. The whole point of the prophets is calling people back to God. Leave your sin Leave all these horrible things you've been involved in and come back to God. Why send prophets to people if they're doing what they don't have any real choice about? The message of the prophets is come back. I can't imagine somebody saying, wait, I can't. Because I cannot in and of myself choose good. Remember, that's what the T is, the first step in it. Total depravity. On my own, by myself, I cannot, we're told, choose good. I cannot come to God. This statement says, you know, if you will do the right thing, you'll eat the good of the land. Otherwise, the sword's coming for you. I would suggest Isaiah agrees with Solomon, agrees with Joshua, agrees with Moses. How about Micah toward the end of the prophets? Micah chapter 6, verse 8. Passage many of us know. This one's a very familiar passage from the book of Micah. If we know anything about the book of Micah, it's probably this passage. He says, he, that's talking about God, has shown you, O man, what is good. What and what does the Lord require of you? What does the Lord require of me? But to do justly. To love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Now, 
I will tell you, some of us collectively have chosen not to do some of those things. Or else we'd be a whole lot more concerned about making sure justice occurs in our land. About making sure that mercy occurs in our land. We collectively have not been on our toes with that. We'll talk a lot more about walking humbly with God, but Micah says God wants you to do this. He wants you to make sure justice occurs. He wants to make sure mercy is extended. He wants to make sure that you walk with him in a humble way. Can I do that? If I can't, why waste the ink on the scroll? But God, by saying these things, Micah is saying, he's shown you what's good. What are you supposed to do? I'm supposed to make sure justice occurs. I'm supposed to make sure that the poor, that the disadvantaged, that the old, that those who have prejudice ex exposed against them are not taken advantage of. Justice means you do the right thing. That people who in fact are guilty are shown mercy where possible. And to walk humbly with God. Micah agrees with Isaiah, I would suggest. Agrees with Solomon, agrees with Joshua, agrees with Moses. So far we've got a pretty strong hand of mankind being able to choose. Let's keep going. How about John chapter 3 verse 16. The passage that talks about the gospel, if you will, in one verse. We read, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever, now notice, does it say whoever God chose before the world began might have eternal life? If you were going to put that thought in somewhere in the text, it sure seems like that would have been a good place to do it. It would have been a place to say God loved the world so much that he gave his son for the people he chose before the world began. John doesn't say that either. What does he say? No, he says that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You have the opportunity to understand what God did in this world, and by believing in what God did and who Jesus is, you do not have to perish. If I'm picking on Thurl again, right? You don't have to perish. It's not preordained. That some people are going to go to the place of condemnation. Not according to John 3, 16. That would have been a perfect place to slip it right in. If I were going to write that in, that's what I would have done. I would have said, God loved the world so much that he gave his son for the people God chose before the world began. It's not there. John lines up with Micah, lines up with Isaiah, lines up with Solomon, lines up with Joshua, lines up with Moses. Good thing I can remember all of them. So that's getting to be a longer list, isn't it? What next? How about 1 John? 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. He, Jesus, is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. He is the sacrifice that pays the price God required for the choices we have made. Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours also, but for the sins of the what? Whole world. The whole world. 
Is the atonement limited only to the people God chose before the world began? If so, John has messed up right there. If the atonement is limited only for the people God chose to come live with him before the world began and not for everybody else, that's false. Because John says he's the atoning sacrifice for the whole world. He is, in fact, the atoning sacrifice for anyone and everyone who believes in him so that they should not perish. That's what John says in John 3 that we read a moment ago. And that's what he says later in his life in 1 John chapter 2. The atonement is for everyone and anyone who responds to the call of God. Peter says the same thought over in 2 Peter. He says, The Lord is not slow concerning his promise, as some count slowness, but is long-suffering toward us, not purposing, not desiring that any of us should perish, except for those he determined before the world began would go to the place of condemnation. Is that what Peter says next? It's not there either. Again, this would have been a great place to slip it in and show what really is occurring and what our religious neighbors say the Bible teaches, but it's just not there. Because he doesn't say that he doesn't want anyone to perish except those he determined ahead of time, not for any reasons of who they are or what they would do, would go to the place of condemnation. That's not what Peter says. What does he say next? Not willing that any of us should perish, but that all, everybody, should come to repentance. God wants the whole world to be saved. That's what he said in John 3.16. He wants everybody to understand that Jesus came, he lived, and he died for you. That's the truth of the gospel. Now, I want to see a couple of things here to the aside before we get to the last slide. I got two quotes from some really early Christians, people before the time of Augustine. Augustine is the one that really seemed to put together the idea of predestination and whether free will had a play or not. 400 A.D., this is earlier than that. This first one is from one of my favorite people, Justin Martyr. He died in 160 A.D. He died because he was a Christian. What did Justin say about this idea? Well, read this. In the beginning, he, God, made the human race with the power of thought and choosing the truth and doing right. Justin believes we have the power to choose the truth and do right. So that all men are without excuse before God. We maintain that each man or woman acts rightly or sins according to his or her own choice. Since God made, in the beginning, made the race of men with free will, they will justly suffer the punishment of whatever sins they have committed. Justin would have an argument with some of the later people. Because in 160 AD, he says, we believe and we teach God made each of us with the power to choose good or to choose evil. And we will make our own choices and we will deal with the consequences, either good or evil. 160 AD. One more. This is from 250 A.D. 
Cyprian. This man was beheaded because he refused to deny Jesus. Gave him the opportunity to deny Jesus. He said, I'm not going to do it. Head fell off. What did he say in 250 AD? The liberty of believing or not believing is placed in free choice. In Deuteronomy, it says, now what he does here is quotes that same passage where Moses was speaking. In Deuteronomy, it says, look, I have set before your face life and death, good and evil. Choose for yourself life that you may live. He refers back to that first passage we read from Deuteronomy. He then says, also in Isaiah, and he quotes the same passage from Isaiah we did. Also in Isaiah, and if you are willing and you hear me, you will eat the good of the land. No, even early Christians understood that each of us has the power to choose good or evil. We have the choice. God's choice, if you want to know the, the truth of it, God's choice was when he chose to send Jesus. The real election, if you will, of God is his choice to decide to send Jesus when everybody was just happily running off to do sin. God chose, he loved the world so much that he sent his son for that sinful world to give each of us the opportunity to choose life or death. That's the real election from the perspective of so we have all been given free will to choose between right and wrong. We all have that free will. No one is individually predestined ahead of time to be condemned. And no one has, if you will, a free pass to go home and live with God. It's up to us to make choices. Whoever believes in him should not perish. Now... You may hear sometimes people say, TV, radio, things like that. We are facing, I've heard it, this is the most important election of our times. It seems like something's happening in about eight, nine days. The most important election ever in the history of our country. If you look back, by the way, that's said every four years, going back for like 100 years. <laughs> it's always said. Let me tell you something. The most important election you and I will ever face is right now. Remember, an election is nothing other than a choice. The most important election in your life, in my life, is whether I will choose to live for God or whether I will choose to live for myself. And it's right now because God doesn't care nearly as much about the choices you made yesterday. He cares, but he's not nearly as concerned about what you did yesterday as what you're doing right now. And so, you and I have free will to choose life or death, good or evil. You have the election, in fact, each and every day of your life, however many days that is, to choose to live for God or whether you're going to live for yourself. So when it comes down to it, choose this day who you're going to serve. So will you choose to live for God today? If you're already a member of his family, have you, have you been choosing to live for God or have you been choosing to live for yourself?
You've been given another day to get back on the right path. If you've been living for yourself, you need to change. You need to recognize you're not living like God wants you to live and come back to him. We do that by confessing our sins and praying to God to give us strength to live better and to forgive our sins. If you're not yet a member of God's family, then you have not made the choice that needs to be made yet. If you're not yet a member of God's family, the election is right now. Right now. As we stand and sing.